Hello, New Life Friday night. Daniel Grothy here. I'm sad to not be with you tonight. I'm in Seattle uh, helping serve a church out there that has just reopened since the COVID lockdown. So with friends there uh, this weekend. But tonight is a great privilege for you because Jason Jackson is here to preach. Jason I've known since I was in high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In fact, he was my high school youth pastor when I was a junior in high school, senior in high school. He's a man of God. He's a freak of nature intellect. He's taught Hebrew at Asbury Theological Seminary for years, and now we have him on our team after all these years of friendship. So tonight we'll be continuing our series through the Lord's Prayer, and Jason is here to preach for us, and I want you to give him a warm New Life Friday night welcome. Welcome, Pastor Jason Jackson. Friday night. It is good to see those of you who are in the room and those of you who are online. Uh, I think being called Daniel Grothy's youth pastor is like an honorific title. Uh, I was 19 years old. I'd been a Christian for three years and Jessica and Christine and Daniel and Anna had to teach me the scriptures as I was their youth pastor. You know, there's moments in youth ministry where parents entrust their kids into the youth pastor's hand. I think David and Becky Grothy looked at me and said, we need to entrust him into our children's hands. This kid <laughs> needs help. So it is good to be with you tonight. Pastor Daniel says hello. Thank you to him and to all the team uh, for the opportunity to be here with you. We are continuing our series called Praying with Jesus. We're walking through the Lord's Prayer together. Over the course of seven weeks, we'll cover each of the seven phrases. Tonight is week two, and we're talking about what does it mean when we pray, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Before we open the scriptures together, let's pray. Father, here on this, the third weekend of Easter, we remember the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we pray that you would do to us what you did to them. Jesus, would you sneak up on us tonight? <laughs> in places where we haven't been able to see you or we maybe didn't recognize you, would you sneak up in our lives? Then would you speak to us? Would you help us to understand the scriptures? Would you open our minds in ways that are important for our discipleship, our following of you. But don't stop there. Don't just open our minds, but ignite our hearts. Cause our hearts to burn inside of us. If there's stuff that needs to be burned off, burn it off. But more than anything, would you ignite us with holy love, that we might walk out of this place burning with love for you and for one another. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And when we think about this phrase, hallowed be thy name, the first thing we have to sort of wrestle with is the fact that names matter. Names matter and they matter a lot. When we were born, we were given at least two names, some people three or four, three for sure if you're from the South, five or six maybe, depending upon your family and how many you get referred to is always a question. Uh, but you're given a name, we're given at least a unique first name. Something that our parents, we hope, you know, sort of carefully thought through, prayed through and picked out. Maybe you as a parent, you can remember going through all of those baby books and reading and wondering, does it really mean that in Hebrew or Greek or whatever it happens to be? I'm going to trust the book and that'll be the story that I tell. Maybe you're expecting right now and starting to think about names, but we're given this unique first name that sort of identifies who we are. And then we have a last name that identifies who our people are. That who our family is, who we are connected to. Our names matter because they say something about our identity and about our family. They say something about our relationships and our history, our ancestors, and how we end up in this place. But maybe more than anything, names are how we're known. 
We want people to know our names because this is how we are known when we walk into a place and someone remembers our name and remembers our spouse's name and remembers our kid's name and remembers our friend or our roommate's name or remembers our coworker or remembers that person that we brought with us three weeks ago to church. When they remember our name, there's something about that that causes a feeling to arise inside of us because we feel known. But it's not just that our names are how we're known. Our, our names actually carry with them our reputation. And when you hear someone's name, you don't just sort of think about a face. There's a whole lot more that comes along with that. How you know that person and what your experience with that person is our names in some way become synonymous with our character or our nature. We actually see this pop up all over in our culture. Think about in our criminal justice system. A defendant is trying to do what? They're trying to clear his or her name. You think about our corporate law structure. There were articles about this, about, about Nike the last couple of weeks, that we trademark names of things because they represent the person or the company. And we're trying to protect that reputation. So we trademark it to prevent other people from using it in ways that we don't want them to or making a profit off of that. Even in our pop culture, according to Bon Jovi, you can give love a bad name. (laughs) Pumba and Timon taught us that there can be shame in your name and you can get downhearted but I won't go any further. I will stop. If those of you who are fans of Harry Potter know that there can be bad names, right? There's you know who. He who shall not be named. And even the very thought of saying his name recalls his deeds and casts shade on your character. So you don't want to go there. There's something about names that matter. And our ancestors, they knew this. The people that we come from, the people who've come before us, our ancestors in the faith, Proverbs 22, one says this, it says, a good name is more desirable than great riches. A good name is more desirable than great riches. So it's probably not a surprise to us that when Jesus teaches us to pray, when he teaches his disciples to pray, when he says, hey, when you pray, pray like this, he says this to them, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Because our names matter and God's name matters as well. The very first phrase is our address, our Father. It tells us who we're praying to and uh, who and how we relate to this person and who we're praying with. But then when we get into the second phrase, it's our first petition. It's our first ask where we're now saying to our Father, this is now what we're asking. And our first ask is that his name would be hallowed. The ask concerns God's name. It's the same concern that actually pops up in the third commandment. For those of you who are familiar with the scriptures, this isn't the first time that the scriptures have said something like God's name matters. But in Exodus chapter 20, verse seven, the people of God are told, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God or the more popular version they may have heard growing up, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is not a new concern that Jesus sort of pops in on us, but he's pulling back and saying, no, the people of God have always been concerned about God's name. And specifically here, what he's referencing is God's personal name. The name Yahweh that's revealed in that passage that Brett was referring to earlier in Exodus chapter three as Moses sees that bush on fire and the Lord speaks to him from the bush and reveals his name, 
Yahweh, because it's by this name that God's known. And we can extend that out as the church and say, not only is he known by that name, Yahweh, Father, but also Jesus and also the Holy Spirit. And so we're concerned about these names. And for us, these personal names remind us that we're not talking about an abstract idea. For us, God is not a generic abstract, anonymous divine being or force. And we're not talking about just this theological or philosophical conception of God, but someone who's personal, who's relatable, who reveals himself to us and who gets involved in the world in our lives. The God who acts the God who listens, the God who loves, the God who responds, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of Moses and the Exodus of David and the prophets, the father of Jesus. This is the name, this is the person we're talking about. And as with us, God's name is synonymous with his character. It carries with it his reputation. It carries with it the sense of this is who God is. This is what he is like. This is his nature, as Pastor Aaron was encouraging us as we sing. And the scriptures, perhaps more than anything else, when they're thinking about God's name, they connect with it, this idea of holiness. That God is holy. And therefore, his name is Holy, And the psalmist knew this well as they were writing songs and singing songs just like we do today. Sing praise to the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. Verse, or, uh, Psalm 33, in him our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. To proclaim his name is holy is to recognize that the God who makes himself known to us is not like us. There is an otherness to God, a distinctiveness to God. There is a breathtaking beauty and there is a breath-giving power. There is a goodness and a greatness to who he is. There is this distinctiveness. There is a difference, not an absence. God is present and he is powerful. He is father and he is king and we claim him to be holy. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, he tells us to say, hallowed be your name. Now hallowed, I'm guessing for you, is not a word that you use in everyday conversation. It's not one that comes up for me, um, except in this prayer. <laughs> it's not something that comes out of my lips at any other time. But the idea is let your name be consecrated. Let it be set apart. Let it be distinct. Let it be holy. Let it keep its otherness. Let us think about it in that way that we think about you. You are holy, and so let your name be holy. In the original language, it's your name be hallowed. It's impassive in voice. The, the name is what we are asking to be hallowed. So the question that we should be asking then, well then, who does the hallowing? If the name is being hallowed, then who's the one who is doing the hallowing? Here, who's the one who's doing the work? And most of the time, we assume it's us. And this is kind of deep in our bones to think this is us. When we're young, we're given a name. We're given this last family name. And depending upon the house that you grew up in, there may have been a lot of conversation about living up to that name. Like in this house, you are Jackson, you are a glass, you are a growthy, you are an aren't, you are a dudek, you are, and this is what we do around here. You may even have those same conversations with your family if you have kids. This is what it means to be a part of this family. And I'm assuming maybe for many of you that that carries with it some significant substance. In, in my household, to be a Jackson meant that we did not do music and we did not play basketball. We went to study hall and we wrestled. 
that's about as substantive as it got, and I'm still trying to figure out why. Like, why couldn't I go to band? Why couldn't I sing other than the fact that I sound terrible? And why is basketball bad and wrestling good? I don't get it, but this is what my dad told me over and over again is what it meant to be a Jackson. But then as we grow up, we sort of move beyond this sort of like living up to our family name and we start to get this, it's time for me to make a name for myself. Right? It kind of starts for us, I think even in high school, like I got to build my college application. I got to build my resume. I've got to build my portfolio. I've got to build my platform. I've got to build now in our social media world. I've got to build my brand. I've got to build my following. I've got to get my name out there. I've got to build my network. I've got to build my business. I've got to build my family. I've got to build my legacy. I've got to put my hands to these things and I've got to build this up. I've got to get my name out there and build some name recognition for myself. And there's some of that that is just a sense of what it means to be good stewards of the things that are before us and getting our hands in the soil and doing the work. But if we're not careful, all of those things can become our modern day towers of Babel. Our ways of sort of building up our tower to the heavens to make a name for ourselves. So then what happens to us is that we might sort of have this realization that we mature a certain place in our discipleship or maybe we just come to a place of faith in Christ and we're like, you know what? It's not about building my name anymore. Now I'm gonna build the Lord's name. I'm gonna build my ministry. Not not my ministry. I'm gonna build the Lord's ministry. I'm gonna build the Lord's kingdom. I'm gonna build the Lord's church. And we move into this sort of space where we're like, okay, no, 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 it's not going to be mine anymore that I'm going to build, but instead I'm going to build God's brand. (laughs) But in the Greek language that this originally comes to us in, when you have a passive voice verb and no subject is named, it's called the divine passive. What it says to us is that God is the one doing the hallowing here. That God is the one doing the work, not us. See, Jesus teaches us to ask God to hallow his own name. Hallowing is always God's work. Because it's only the holy God who can make holy things. It's only the holy God who can make things holy It's only him that can actually do this. So in the Lord's Prayer, we're not sort of coming into this moment and praying and saying, okay, God, I'm vowing to make your name holy. We're not promising to try harder or to do more. We're just saying, you know what, God, I'm going to give you a good name. His name is already holy. It's pretty good. There's not a lot more we can do for it. Right? He's got it under control. Instead, what we're saying is we're asking God to do it. We're asking God to hallow his name where it is not hallowed. Is what we're doing. We're asking God to hallow his name where it is not currently being hallowed. So what does that look like? What are we actually asking for? I think we had a glimpse for this a couple of times in the Old Testament. The first one is in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Here Israel is gathered on the other side of the Jordan, preparing to enter into the land. And they're instructed to destroy all the places where the nations worship their gods. 12 verse 4 says this. They're told as they go into the land, break down their altars and smash their sacred stones and burn their Asherah poles and the fire and cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. I think this is the foundational passage for Christian heavy metal music. Like we're breaking, we're smashing, we're burning, we're cutting down, we're wiping out. But we're doing all of this to names. Did you pick up on that? And wipe out their names from those places. It says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place 
the Lord your God will choose from among your tribes, seek the place where he will put his name there for his dwelling to that place you must go. One of my professors, Sandra Richter, has demonstrated this phrase, the place where Yahweh will set his name is an ancient Near Eastern idiom. It means the place where someone sets an inscription on a monument. In the ancient Near East, what would happen is as a king would conquer sort of new land, they would come over here and say like, oh, you know, I've got this land here, but I really want that land over there. They take their army in. What they do is after they conquer that, they would uh, set up like a monument, a, a statue, and then write their name on it and their gods. It's a way of saying this land is now my land. In our world, we raise up a flag, right? It's a way of sort of claiming territory, of saying, hey, the previous landowners, the previous rulers, those who used to be sort of worshiped here, those who used to be in control, they've been evicted. They're no longer in charge. Their flag has come down, a new flag has come up. And so you had all these places where these names would be inscribed and the instruction is to go in and break all of those down and to look for the place that Yahweh puts his name. The sense here is that the Canaanite kings and the Canaanite gods, they're being evicted and a new king is moving in. Yahweh himself. So what happens is, is when God hallows his name, he makes holy places where he makes places holy. This is what God does because holy places are his places. That's what a holy place is. It's his place. It's the place that he's claimed. Or maybe better yet, from our point of view, it's a place that he's reclaimed. Because we believe that the earth is the Lord and everything in it. And so there are times that someone tries to make a counterclaim on what is actually God's. And then God comes and says, no, 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 no. I'm taking back what is actually mine. And it's a place that his presence can then therefore be encountered because where his name is, then it's his. And where it's his, then that's where he is. And it's a place that becomes holy because it's claimed by him and his presence can be encountered in that place. When God hallows his name, he makes holy places. One of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry, says that in the world, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. The earth is the Lord is in everything in it. There are times that his stuff, his places have been desecrated. To hallow his name is to reclaim territory, to see the sacredness of space come back into play. So when we pray, what we're asking is for God to make desecrated places, sacred places again. We're asking him to make every ground holy ground. We're asking him to make this space holy space. We're asking him to make our dwelling places, our homes and our apartments and our dorm rooms, to make our dwelling places his dwelling place. We're asking him to make our workplaces, our offices, and our co-working spaces, and our auto shop, and our restaurants, and all the places that we put our hand to. We're asking him to make our workplaces his workplace. Would you hallow this space? Would you claim it as yours? And would you show up here? Would this become a place that you can be Encountered. I don't know of any better picture of that than Mary's home, where a drug house becomes a safe house. This is God reclaiming territory. This is the hallowing of God's name as he makes holy places. And so what happens for us is that when we pray this way, we say, Father, hallowed be your name. We start to cultivate inside of us a holy curiosity because we start walking into places wherever it happens to be 
We started asking the question, God, how are you reclaiming this space? What are you doing here? How are you reclaiming this? How are you reclaiming this house? How are you reclaiming this apartment complex? How are you reclaiming this work environment? How are you reclaiming this school? How are you reclaiming this neighborhood? How are you reclaiming this service space? How are you making this space holy? And for us as the people of God, then what happens is that we start to recognize that every place becomes a place that can become holy and every place is a place that we can encounter God. Every place becomes a place that we can encounter God. Every place. So we say, hallowed be your name. Put your name in this place and that place and that place that we and others might encounter your presence. Hallow your name. Make this place holy. Make it sacred again. But there's one other place in the Old Testament where God puts his name. He not only puts it in this space where they're supposed to go to worship the tabernacle or the temple, but he puts it in another really interesting place. And it's in a passage that I know is really familiar to those of you here at New Life Friday night. Numbers chapter six, verse 24. The Lord said to, says to, to Aaron and the priests, here's what you're supposed to pray over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And the very next line says this. And so they will put my name on the Israelites. See, God doesn't just put his name, doesn't just place his name on, uh, put his name on places. He puts his name on people. He puts his name on people. Not just tabernacles and temples and churches and sanctuaries, but he puts his name on us. So that wherever we go, His name goes with us. See, when we pray, hallowed be your name, when God hallows his name, he not only makes holy places, he makes holy people. He makes people holy. And he doesn't just do this for us individually, but it's actually, he makes a holy community. In our creed, we say we believe in the holy church. See, true holiness actually works itself out in and through the people of God. It works itself out in relationships. One of my favorite historical figures in the church, John Wesley, says it this way. He says, solitary religion is not found there, meaning in the gospel. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion, but social, relational, communal, and no holiness but social holiness, holiness that gets worked out in relationships, holiness that shows itself up in the way that we talk to each other and the way we talk about each other and the way that we treat one another and the way that we love one another, the way that we care for one another. See, when we pray this way, we not only create a holy curiosity about places, but we create a holy curiosity about people. And we specifically create a holy curiosity about our life together. Yes, we sort of, we say, God, make me holy, hallow your name in me. But we don't stop there. In fact, I don't even think we start there. I don't think we start in the individual. Remember we say, our father, we're praying together for one another. We say, God, would you make us, would you make us the people called New Life Friday Nights? Would you make us holy? Would you make us holy people? Would you hallow your name in this place and in this people? Would you hallow your name here? Then what happens is that we start to look for God's presence in each other. People are no longer just, you know, people to be avoided or problems to get around. But they become very carriers of the name of God and the presence of God into our lives. And our connections with one another become the context by which God consecrates us, by which he makes us holy. That the congregation that you're a part of, that the team that you serve on, that the group that you attend, 
that the friends that you worship and pray with, that the family that you gather around the table with, the roommates that you connect with in the name of Jesus become the very context by which God's holiness gets worked out in our lives. And so we start asking the same kind of questions about one another. What are you up to here? What are you up to as we gather together? What are you up to tonight? What are you up to when we gather together for this thing or for that thing? What are you up to, God? And how are you making us holy? And this should come up for us, especially when things get hard. Not when they get abusive, but when relationships take work and they're hard, it's oftentimes in those moments that God's doing his most holy kind of work inside of us because our selfishness is being disrupted. Our protectiveness is being disrupted. Our greed is being disrupted. Our ways of sort of isolating, holding people at bay are being disrupted. And the things that God actually wants to work on in our own souls are being exposed. And we're like, ah, I don't really wanna be around you anymore because when I'm around you, then I have to work on the fact that I don't like to tell the truth. (laughs) And that makes me uncomfortable. So I must need a new church. No, the name and the presence of God is coming to you through the person sitting next to you and saying, these are the things that I wanna work on in you. Why? Because I wanna make you holy. Not individually, but as a people. So when we start to think that way, church doesn't become a thing, right? A thing that we attend or a building sitting somewhere. Church doesn't become a commodity that we consume. You know, it's like, I just really like going there and you know, the things that I receive. That's part of it, but it's not limited to that. Church doesn't become an an optional add-on to the Christian life, you know, like extra credit. (laughs) The people that are singing next to us or sitting next to us, don't become sort of incidental or inconsequential associations in our life. It's not who's sitting next to you. The person sitting next to you is the person who God has put their name on, his name on. And the person sitting next to you and around you and in front of you and behind you is the very group of people that God's working his holiness into corporately becomes something more. And so we start to go, God, what are you up to here? What is happening? In this holy place with these holy people, what are you doing? We start to see this place and these people as the very epicenter of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Hallowed be your name. Make this space holy. Make this people holy. That the places that I go and the person I am might be made holy as well. This is, I think, one of the fundamental ways that prayer changes us. That prayer changes things, but the primary thing that prayer changes is us. And one of the things that changes is it changes how we see. Changes our perception and our expectations. Something similar happens to us actually when we come to the table, when we come to communion. We no longer see an ordinary table with simple gifts of bread and juice or wine. We don't see an everyday place with mundane items, but instead we see a holy place with holy things. We see a place where the Lord has hallowed his name. And the bread and wine become not just simply bread and wine, but they become for us the body and blood of Christ that we might become holy, that we might become the body of Christ redeemed by his blood, that we might become holy people, people in who the Lord has hallowed his name. We pray and develop a holy curiosity that we start to see ordinary things 
and ordinary places as the places that we might encounter God and ordinary people as the very vessels of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. And we come to the table and see something ordinary like bread and wine becoming a very encounter with a living God. This is what prayer does for us. It changes the way we see places and people. So let's pray this prayer together. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and lead us not into temptation. Oh wait, I forgot the forgiveness part. (laughs) Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. I prayed a million times and I still can't get the words right. But Lord, would you do that tonight? Would you hallow your name here and in us? Would you make this a holy place And would you make us a holy people that we might encounter your presence? In Jesus' name. My friends, I invite you to stand right now and you can prepare the elements. They're people, our dear Augustenbergs walking the room. If you need need elements, you can just kind of raise your hand and they'll get those to you. If you're new to New Life, this is the first time that you're here, um, you should know that we celebrate an open table because Jesus did. The only prerequisite for this table, the only thing that's required for you to participate is for you to be hungry for Jesus. If you want Jesus, Jesus wants you. My friends, hear the gospel tonight, this prayer is the prayer that Jesus prays over you. This table reminds us that he raises his flag over your life. He claims you. If you feel like, I can't come to the table tonight, I can't dine with this community, I cannot dine with this God because this area of my life is desecrated. That area has just been, like it's been, it's a mess. It's a wreck and it's been a wreck and it continues to be a wreck. I am here to tell you that Jesus claims that part of your life and he is going to make it holy. He is going to hallow you. You are going to be alive. You are going to be Full, you are going to be okay because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and having given, having given thanks for it, he broke it and he shared it with you. He shares it with you and he says, take, eat. This is my body and it's given for you. This is the very substance of me, and I'm getting it into you. You will not be desecrated. You will be full of Easter life like I am. And so take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, my friends, if you are hungry for the life of Jesus, he wants to get it into you, and he is getting it into you. See that in faith tonight. You may receive the bread. Likewise, when supper was over, he took the cup. And having given thanks, he shared that cup with his disciples. My friends, the Holy One, the Hallowed One is with us tonight. He is with you, and he shares this cup with you. And 
he says, drink from this, all of you. It is colonizing your life. It is washing away all of your brokenness. And it may take longer than you want, but I am setting you free from your sins. They are forgiven. They are washed away. And I will raise my flag over you. You will be alive. So receive that in faith this evening. You may receive the cup. So right now, all across the room, especially those of us who are tired, those of us who are weary, those of us who don't want to give, those of us who feel like we are in, we're stuck in the most ordinary of places with the most ordinary of people, may you recognize and sing praise to the God who is hallowing his name in you and among you. Thank you, Jesus, that you pray over us. Hallowed be your name. Wherever you are across the room tonight, lift up praise to him. Lift up your hearts in faith as we sing praise to the name of our God. Blessing and honor and power be unto your name, O
Shalom, our God of peace. Emmanuel, here in me. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forever. is hallowing this ground and he is hallowing this city and he is hallowing all of our lives. It's really good news, brothers and sisters, and we can sing in celebration with the knowledge that he is worthy of praise because he is hallowing us. Let's praise his first time here, Vera, hang a right as you're on your way out to Guest Central. We want to give you a gift and get to know you just a little bit better. And a reminder that it's Wednesday for the men's night out. So all of you men in the room with your high-pitched voices, go ahead and make plans to be there at 6 o'clock on April 21st. So as you go this evening, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you. And may he keep you. 
may he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May you sense that he has turned his bright, smiling countenance upon you and give you peace. He's put his name on you. Go in faith and live like it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters. Be blessed.